0: Explore the night skies with our large range of high-quality telescopes. Whether you're a novice or an astronomy expert, we have the right telescope for you in our Australian Geographic e-store. Explore the whole range and find the right telescope for you today. Go to australiangeographic.com.au shop. That's australiangeographic.com.au shop. <coughs> I'm Liz Guinness and welcome to Talking Australia. Today I'm joined by Ian Morris, who's a teacher, biologist, conservationist, author and all-round incredible human being. Ian has spent the past 50 odd years living and working in East Arnhem Land. And as you'll hear today, his passion for culture and people there is palpable. So join me today as Ian reveals the many gifts of this remarkable region of Australia. Trust me, you're not going to want to miss a second. Welcome to Talking Australia, Ian.
1: Nice to be here.
0: Oh, wonderful to have you all the way up in sunny Darwin. What's the temperature like today up there?
1: Well yesterday we had uh, one of the hottest days in June ever so uh, the temperature is, is rather beautiful this time of year. It is our really best uh, period in the year now but uh, yeah yesterday mm-hmm. was uh, right up there.
0: What, what What are you talking about in terms of temperature? Was it like 30s or? No, it was
1: about 34, 35 where I was. Um, and that was in yeah. the latter part of the afternoon, but uh, it, it made the news mm. as uh, as our hottest yeah, temperature. Yeah, I saw
0: that last night. I uh, I, I envy you sitting down on near Sydney. It's uh, it's a little cooler down here. It's I think it, we got to about oh I think it was nine degrees this morning when I jumped out of bed. So I much prefer the thirties than the uh, than the single digits. But anyway, <laughs> there you, there you have it. Yes, we do. I'll swap you any day of the week. I was born in <laughs> Sydney, but I
1: think I lost my. Uh, my southern resistance, uh, living up here so long, um, I do love going south anywhere in Australia, but uh, it's always nice to come back to the tropics for me.
0: Yeah, definitely. Um, so you said you uh, you've lived in uh, in the in the territory for uh, quite a while now. How old were you when you first headed up there?
1: Well, my family were involved uh, in in Arnhem Land uh, along the coast uh, from uh, after the Second World War onwards, and. Uh, my, uh, I had an uncle who was in Changi Prison Camp uh, for the duration of the, the Second World War and uh, he was a design engineer. When he finally made it back out again and uh, regained his health a, a year or two later, all he wanted to do was repair damage uh, done to Australia by, uh, by the Japanese uh, bombers along the coastline. So he and his wife uh, began rebuilding programs in in, uh, Indigenous communities along the coast and they, uh, they loved the work, they loved the people and they spent their whole life doing that. And as a young boy in Sydney um the son of his uh, his younger brother we always had indigenous kids uh staying with us and their parents in our home in sydney while I doing courses and all sorts of things the kids would come to school with us so from a very early age all i wanted to do was to go to arnhem land and learn what these kids had learnt and and see where they lived and they sort of knew everything about the environment and and uh it excited me and uh, we weren't taught anything about that sort of thing in sydney very much so uh From about the age of nine I've been involved with uh, uh the top end of the Northern Territory here and its indigenous people and uh I feel very blessed in having been able to experience that
0: yeah so that's um if you don't mind me saying that's almost sixty years of of involvement um, with those communities, yeah. Yep, yeah, Okay. So those um, young students that were coming down, were they were that those trips assisted by your uncle? Is that something an initiative he was running? Yes. Or? Yes. Uh,
1: he became yeah. the, uh, the the superintendent of the uh, Elko Island Mission, as it was known in those days, and uh, mm-hmm. they would often send uh, people, married couples, often down to to train in various aspects of of, of uh, competing with the modern world, language and all yeah. sorts of things, and they yeah. would always bring their kids. And their kids would become little black celebrities in, in, in our primary school in Sydney, and uh, uh, we couldn't get enough of it. And uh, oh, yeah. I'm still the same today. <laughs>
0: <laughs> I remember that. I grew up in um, regional New South Wales, so um, a little place called Bellingen, and we had a, a few Aboriginal students as well, and you know they were well adored. Mm. You know. I guess it was something different at the time. It wasn't something that was, you know, um, the norm, but... Yes, certainly. Uh, great, great mates were made in in the schoolyard for sure. Um, so you finished school, and then you trained as a high school science teacher, is that right? Yes, I uh, I did uh,
1: zoology first at uh, at UNSW in Sydney, and and uh, my objectives were always uh, to uh, to become a zoologist and get out there with the wildlife of Australia and have a good time. Um, mm. And. Uh, Then I realised, oh, well, a lot of complicated things happened. I had to uh, register for national service in those days and most of my mates were being sent to Vietnam and I was expecting that to happen. Uh, And I missed out by a day, uh, so I was suddenly free. At the same time, uh, the principal of the school uh, up on Elko Island, Shepparton College, uh, he had been getting me to talk to the secondary students about my zoology Uh, training in Sydney, and and the kids were really excited about the scientific side of of wildlife. And um, it went so well, the principal said, you know, I'd like to offer you a a role in my school and teaching. And... uh, uh, yeah, and so I uh, I did a, uh, a fairly shallow um, dip ed, as they call it in those days, uh, to after the
0: yep.
1: uh, zoology to uh, get me into the school. And, and then I realised I needed a lot more training. And, and this was a far bigger subject than I anticipated. And I went back to uni for another four years. Um <clears throat> Uh, but from there on, my address was Arnhem Land and, uh, and uh, yeah, I'm still doing that same sort of work in and out of schools. These days, I'm not a teacher. I get invited in to work on projects uh, with various schools across the uh, the north here.
0: So a project would be, just to give me an example of what you mean.
1: Okay. One of the uh, projects that we've been doing a lot of work on uh, ties in the, the Aboriginal people, their history, uh, their land management up until European arrival and that sort of thing, um, in with modern the modern world so we 're really looking at two aspects of the same thing um, and it involves the parents of the kids and their grandparents often coming in and telling us about the old days and and what they were doing when they were the age of their children or grandchildren and uh, we 'd have this kind of traditional input into our classrooms um, that was invaluable um, and uh, and we 've been building up a uh, a bit of a data bank uh, on this this area before it's too late, because uh, a lot of that indigenous traditional knowledge um, is being pushed out by modern education programs and and all sorts of things. Mm -hmm. Uh, Often uh, with indigenous people, all their science is tied up in their languages. they have very complex languages, uh, very difficult to translate it across into English. So um, they didn't look like they were very scientific in the early days to to, uh, European people. And uh, yep. and in fact, they're very scientific and, and we're suffering the consequences of not taking that seriously now in Australia, particularly with the management of our national parks and, and uh, natural areas.
0: And so an example of that would be, I imagine, you know, burning, uh, burning off... Uh, burning is, you know, is certainly a serious
1: so. aspect of land management. And again, we didn't recognise what they were doing. And uh, now we know mm. through our own scientific processes that what Indigenous people were doing on the landscape up here was uh, a benefit both to the, the, the uh, natural ecosystems and to the humans and it maintained a really complex system and, uh, and today we've moved in with all our modern technology and, and uh, trashed the joint really. We're, we've really run it backwards seriously and we're still in that same situation in North Australia today with our misuse of fire, misunderstanding of the ecological role of fire.
0: So, if I take you back to when you when you first came up um, to the Northern Territory and you were you started teaching there, um, was there a language barrier at that point? How did that all work? Uh,
1: well, in those days, they were all mission schools. The government had no role in okay. uh, in, in Indigenous education in those. They left it up to the um, various mission agencies, or uh, quite mm-hmm. quite a range of them. All very very good, I might add. I was incredibly impressed with their integrity in education and uh language, yes, any non-indigenous teacher in indigenous school had to learn the language of the children and that was that was mandatory mm. and, and we had to do uh three afternoons a week as as uh, teachers in the adult education center and we were instructed by an indigenous uh, guide who, who took us through the language uh, very thoroughly so after about two or three years uh external teachers, non-Indigenous teachers uh, were quite fluent in the language and it was lots of fun um, and I've benefited from that for, since you know, since those days, it's still very important to me.
0: Yeah, definitely. Was it a difficult process? No. Uh, I mean, it, obviously, no, it wasn't. No,
1: because I was excited so, about it. It, it, meant, it was like opening a door for me, all this science that they had, the, the intricate ways that they, uh, they looked at the landscape. Um, was all tied up in their language, and I, the only way mm-hmm. I could get access to this was to learn it and then document it. Um, and uh, yeah, I've I've been doing that. I took that into park management uh, after I um, changed from teaching across to uh, to working for Australia National Parks and Wildlife Service, and uh, it's been most useful. And that's it's a it's a science that's. Um, been quietly killed off by the modern world without even it being recognised, and uh, it's a bit of a shame. But um, we are now making efforts to to uh, to arrest this uh, uh, the disappearance of this wonderful uh, Australian science that was here before we got there.
0: So, at the moment, you speak is it you speak three different languages?
1: Well, I- in Arnhem Land, there are many languages, not just three, and. Mm-hmm. Uh, most uh, Arnhemlanders are bilingual in that their mother speaks one language and their spa- father speaks another language, but then they have other relatives that speak third, fourth, fifth, sixth languages. And I learnt very early in the piece that the children in my classrooms were multilingual. They, they could hear... Um, many of the local languages or all of them actually and then they would answer back in their father's language that was kind of politeness um, so whenever you spoke to a right. person you could tell what clan they belonged to and where their geographical uh, country was uh, and there's a whole lot of information so there were these multilingual conversations going on in the classroom all the time uh, where kids spoke their father's language but they were fluent in mum's language and and mum's mum's language and so forth that goes out like that. So they're very clever yeah. with language and, and they're very precise, a lot more precise than English is with their languages. Um, so uh, to answer your question, uh, once I learnt the language uh, of the school, which was a language called Jambarpoingo, uh, once you learn Jambarpoingo, you can then listen to some of the other languages because they have a lot of commonality um, yep. But uh, the uniqueness in each language is is kind of uh, brought about through the land that those people live on their their traditional country. So it's land affects language and, and uh, in, in an amazing way.
0: So when you say that, do you mean I'm just and look, this is very uh, basic, I suppose representation of of it is if you came from a desert area, then the land would be in, the language would be informed by that because you are talking about sand and a particular type of um, vegetation whereas if you came from you know the rainforest it would be different again is that is that what you mean?
1: Yeah it, um, it goes back to their social system um, and so as I said you, you, um, your mother comes from one clan group and one geographical area mm-hmm. and your dad from another are quite different so um, mm-hmm. Marriage in Aboriginal traditional circles um, meant that uh, you were born into a family where you inherited, physically inherited, your father's country and the responsibility for looking after that. But you also inherited your mother's country and a spiritual kind of role in the management um, of that that mum's country sort of thing. Um, and so language was kind of tied to that country. Um, and uh, if you Aboriginal people in Western Arnhem Land cannot understand people way over in Eastern Arnhem Land because in traditional times they never they never met each other, met. and that yeah, was right. quite specific on where you went and how you how you spoke and how you conducted yourself. There was all these amazing social rules that went with language, and uh, it's quite a complex social picture, but very um, very neatly designated. Um, you really fit onto your country. So when Indigenous people say, you know, oh, I'm part of my, my land, to us whitefellas, that, mm. that's kind of no real deep meaning in that, but to Aboriginal people, it's everything to them. The, in every mm. aspect of their life, they're they tied to their land and uh, the responsibilities that go with that. So um, as you grow up in that, as I did as a young person, you suddenly realise the, the magnitude of this this social system that they lived under. And, of course, yeah. in the early days, that got trashed too because they, they pushed people off their country and they jammed all sorts of different people together and their kids didn't learn the, the proper rules for their land. and uh, the, the whole social system deteriorated. Uh, in here in the north, in Arnhem Land, we we're very lucky because that didn't really happen like it did in most other parts of Australia. So the, so the, um, the languages and the whole social system is still quite intact and uh, it's very exciting uh, to be a part of that.
0: Yeah, definitely, and that you know, you say that that it was remained intact, presumably because there just wasn't as much white uh, Correct. occupation. Yes. <clears throat> yeah,
1: and the missionaries okay. wanted the people to keep their country and to keep their languages and uh, to be proud of who they were, um, and uh, that's in the long term that's been a fantastic thing. So uh, I just love sitting around under trees with the old people. We talk about the old days, and they look at the uh, at what the missionaries did up here. And, and uh, how it affected their lives into the modern world. And uh, very, very, um, they speak very fondly of those times and they wish that their grandchildren could have experienced a lot of those sorts of things. But uh, yeah, it's, uh, it's an interesting part of Australia up here.
0: Oh, it sounds fascinating. I'm just. Into, I'm wondering if uh, you know someone's listening to this and thinking they want to know more about it. Is there? Can you think of any resources or any websites that people could go to to learn more or read more? Or
1: yeah, sure. Is I there mean, any that available that that, uh, that wonderful film that they made called Ten Canoes. Uh, that's always worth a look mm-hmm. because a lot of the. Uh, uh, the aspects of the of the unique lifestyle of these people comes out in that film. All the uh, sense of humour and the, and uh, all the funny things that was made right on the country, out there in Central Arnhem Land, Central Northern Arnhem Land. Um, there are many books written. There's anthropologists uh, came up to Arnhem Land in the 1930s and 1940s, and in order to to carry out their role uh, studying human beings, they had to learn the language, and um, there's There's one book called A Black Civilization* by Lloyd W. Warner, um, written a long, long time ago, but this guy was tuned right into the people in the traditional sense um, and he kind of analysed their society and I recommend that to lots of people um, because that information is no longer available um, and the world has changed, but that gives you a kind of a window into who these people are were traditionally and that really helped me in, in, as an outside uh, westerner coming in to live in those those circles really helped me to understand uh, uh, who these people were but there are many resources many other resources as well um, mm-hmm. but it's funny you know Arnhem Land uh, the top northeast section of the Northern Territory has has been kind of shut away uh, it had no real um, uh, resources that white people wanted to get hold of and um, Mm. Until a reasonably recent times, and they found a bit of uranium and a bit of this and a bit of that, but um, yeah. that helped the people to uh, to be able to look at the rest of Australia, um, and see what happened and and try not to let that happen to them, sort of thing. And and uh, so the culture has remained relatively intact. And now the young people um, are quite proud of who they are and and uh, who they were. And and mm. uh, yeah, that's that's something. their their personal integrity has been sort of protected by this uh, remoteness if you like um, unique part of Australia
0: We'll take a quick break and be back in just a moment We have a special offer for all our listeners Subscribe to our AG magazine for six months for just $30 and save 33% on the newsstand price That's three issues of our award winning magazine delivered to your home for just $30 Plus You'll also receive exclusive benefits, including 10% off all products purchased in our e-store. Go to australiangeographic.com.au slash Talking Australia for our special offer. That's australiangeographic.com.au slash Talking Australia. In terms of, of what you're doing now, um, how does what yeah what are you what are you up to now? What are you doing? Well, you went I, from science teacher to yes, I,
1: I've moved into conservation. I, I like to work on the the front line of where human beings uh, meet natural systems, um, and mm-hmm. and I, I take that into schools. Uh, kids get excited about uh, you know our responsibilities as hu- humans with managing um, the natural resources of Australia. Um, and so that's in these modern times. I've been doing that a lot with my own people now, um, you know, guest lecturing on uh, on uh, expeditions along our coastline in, in in ships of you know up to a hundred people at a time, and introducing yeah. them to this this natural world that we have here, um, and and getting them excited about Australia. Often, you know, we grow up in cities. We we're divorced from the, the feel of the natural world, um, people can come up here on holidays now and get right into it. Um, that's where yeah. I, I like to be. I'm also in payback mode because uh, those old Aboriginal people, most of whom have gone now, who, who educated me as a teenager um, and a young person, um, that was an invaluable education. And and I, I can't pay those people back directly but today I've got their children and their grandchildren in schools and universities and things like that and where I'm trying to to do my my bit for them um in return for that marvellous service by helping their kids to get educated and and uh get a good go at the world so um, yeah I do quite a lot of that sort of work now in schools and and universities and things like that um and uh Also still involved with park management and and with nature documentary making um, organisations like National Geographic and uh, the BBC Natural History Unit, Sir David's group. uh, They're often making uh, documentaries in northern Australia here and I find myself out there in the bush with them um, trying to work out how we're going to record something unique about Australia. Just recently we've been looking at the beautiful little gulian finches that live in the Mm -hmm. rocky hills. Uh, south of Darwin and one of the most stunning little birds and um, that's good because their story's going into a new BBC series called Life in Colour and uh, yeah. these little guys certainly have life in colour and we've been looking at the private lives of these little birds and how they interact with other species around them and, and the sorts of trees that they use uh, to raise their young in because those trees give them protection from predators um, through camouflage and so forth. So all these wonderful little details we know very little about are now starting to come out and hopefully will be on everybody's television screens in the next 12 months or so.
0: Oh, look, it sounds amazing. Um, uh, the little Gouldian Finches for people that don't know them, they have a, is it a little red cap, a little orange cap? Is that right, or cheek?
1: Uh, well, they have, um, th- there's two color phases. There's actually three, but y- you can get them with black heads. Uh, or or redheads, and every now and then there's a genetic hiccup and and one will come out with a golden head. Uh, About one in every thousand, we think, uh, is a golden-headed gulian. But they have all these contrasting colours um, in their plumage and it just looks beautiful. When you see one up close, it's breathtaking.
0: Yeah, yeah. And they're tiny little things, aren't they?
1: Yes, just a a small finch, uh, less than a sparrow size. yeah.
0: So I imagine it takes a bit of... So are they in, in great numbers up there or is it... Is they it a, were in serious like peril. Of
1: um, because of their beautiful plumage, they became very popular in aviaries. And because people were mm. happy to spend big money on, on our little Goulian finches, then a, a trapping industry grew up very, very quickly uh, in North Queensland, Northern Territory and the Kimberley region of Western Australia where the Goulians live naturally. And it almost exterminated them Um and massive uh, numbers of Guleans. They were, they were caught in nets uh, a whole flock at a time. They exported south to, uh, to pet shops. Um, many of them died on the way, uh, and many of them died because of the climate change. They went from the tropics to the to the um, temperate zone where you have very cold winters, and, and they didn't have any underfeathers to protect them from that cold weather, so these beautiful little birds would fall off their perches. And so as a result... Um, the wild populations crashed. And on top of that, the trappers let a disease go in amongst the wild birds called air sac mite, and it was transferred from the adults to the chicks in the nest. So these little birds had come out of their nests with asthma. They couldn't breathe properly, so they were picked off by the predators. So our Gullian finch population was in serious trouble until a little mm. while ago when some conservationists got onto the, the, uh, the problem. Uh, state government stopped issuing licences for trappers uh, made it illegal, and uh, and the disease was cleaned up by uh, an amazing uh, biologist who uh, who worked for the Northern Territory government here and figured out how to reverse that uh, that disease going through the population, a bit like COVID nineteen, um, COVID sorry, right. and um, COVID's a crow, of course, <laughs> and uh, so our finches are now seeing a comeback, and uh, where we've recently taken the BBC Natural History Film Unit. Um, is an area not too far south of Darwin where where we were seeing dozens of, of Gouldians coming down to drink in the dry season around the water. And now we're seeing up to, well, well over a thousand at a time. So their numbers are picking up and it, it's a wonderful story.
0: So if I can take you back to, um, I guess, education um, and the learnings that you had um, in terms of the environment from the Indigenous um, peoples up there I, I'm just kind of fascinated we, we talked about the burning in terms of you know the science of the Indigenous science but what, what would be another example of, of to give people a clear idea of, of what it means to learn um, the science of the, of the people that have inhabited you know that region for tens of thousands of years?
1: Well, interestingly, I think of a whole lot of things all at once at the moment. But one good example, <laughs> uh, while I was teaching uh, on Elko Island, um, mm-hmm. a lady from uh, James Cook University did a, a survey of the dugong populations in northern Australia. Um, and, of course, they're a relatively endangered uh, marine mammal. And yeah. uh, so she surveyed the populations across the north, mainly from the air, and... Uh, At the time, she contacted me and asked me, uh, you know, a little bit about what the population at Elko Island did with dugongs. And I said, well, they barbecue them, they eat them, but they Mm -hmm. also love them and respect them. So I started a study with my secondary students and we found that in a population of about 2,500 people uh, on that year, they ate 11 dugong. Now, we had literally hundreds in our populations here and... uh, there are a lot of rules. Uh, dugong meat is very, very... It's like pork uh, in another way, but um, it was used for special occasions and only certain people could go and hunt dugong and only only certain people could eat certain parts of dugong. There are lots and lots of rules associated with it. And what came out of it for me was these people had a real empathy with the species. They, they loved the dugong. They didn't want to see the dugong... Um, endangered in any way. So there were, there were at least strict rules. And then this, um, this lady found out that a lot of the populations, the remaining populations of dugong in North Australia um, were sort of centered around Aboriginal, coastal Aboriginal communities, which seemed a bit strange seeing as they ate them. Um, mm. And then it occurred to all of us that because of the rules with harvesting dugong, the indigenous rules, um, they, were in, they were encouraging populations of dugongs to be healthy. They were taking out the slow ones probably, um, and uh, they weren't allowed to take cows or calves because, uh, you know, that's part of the breeding cycle. And there was a real conservation practice going on which manifested itself in the, in the fact that the dugong populations were healthiest uh, around places like Elko Island. We were quite uh, impressed with, with the, the results of this survey. And uh, it brought out to the kids that, that conservation was, was certainly practised uh, to the highest degree in, in their traditional lives. So uh, that was just one aspect that uh, I, I learned probably I learnt more than my students did about, about Aboriginal science or about science in general. Um, and my job was to, to sort of show them the equivalence of what was going on around them. And uh, quite often there weren 't too many equivalents of what was going on around them, and particularly with conservation, we were seeing fishermen drowning dugong now floating dead upside down onto our beaches from drowning in nets and uh, and all sorts of problems that, that the aboriginal people thought were pretty horrifying really um, for yeah, a species that they they revered so um, it was a very interesting time for me, and uh, i 've I've been trying to promote a lot of these uh, Traditional scientific values that, uh, that I came up against uh, in my time.
0: And how do you do that? How do you, I mean, it, it, obviously it makes perfect sense when you, you know, you were just talking about it then. And I said, well, of course, it's like, you know, when people saying, well, a farmer's going to destroy their soil by over farming it. And you think, well, that makes no sense because they, get, they glean their livelihood off the land. So if they destroy the soil, then they won't have a livelihood. And it, I guess it's a similar thing, obviously, with the dugongs. Um, how do you how do you take that message out and have it be heard? Um, well, um,
1: examples around us today, Kakadu National Park is a good example. It was uh, declared a national park for all the wrong reasons. it was it was declared a national park because uh, the government wanted to get access to the uranium deposits that were there. and in order to to get the traditional owners to sign it over so they could mine it, they uh, they agreed to manage the land around. Uh, that area as a national park and they decided they'd do it jointly uh, with the traditional owners. Uh, I still don't think the Commonwealth Government understands what joint management really means because um, it's not really never been jointly managed. Uh, Aboriginal people are there, the traditional owners live in the park, um, but they have a very, very minor role in the management of the place. It's all done by, by modern funding and modern technology and and uh, yeah, it's, it's, as a result, the uh, ecosystem in Kakadu has paid a big price. Um, when the park was declared in 1979, there were virtually no endangered species, no threatened species, everything was in good order. And in my opinion, that was because it had been managed to a large degree uh, by these traditional owners. Uh, the buffalo industry had come in earlier and changed the fire regimes a bit. And we could see that yep. the, uh, the downgrading in, the, in some areas with bad burning. Aboriginal people said, we can, we can fix that. We know how to fix that. But um, th- that really hasn't been allowed to happen. And uh, today, most mammal species, most vertebrate animals in Kakadu National Park are in some kind of peril. Uh, some have disappeared. We don't know where they went. Um, we've had some pretty intense fire management going on um, using helicopters and <laughs> all sorts of things like that. Yeah. And, and it really has gone the wrong way. So it's a wake-up call if, if, if we're looking and listening um, to the fact that uh, Australia had been managed for, we think, about 65,000 years and probably more by Indigenous groups who've, who had an empathy with the land that they were managing when they, when they lit their fires. They knew what the fire was going to do. They knew when it was going to go out. Um, they knew how it affected every plant and every animal. And in order to have a good standard of living, they had to make sure that fire benefited the plants and the animals and, and therefore they would say, there's one day in the year when it's the right day to light a fire in this particular place, and if we're too early, the fire won't achieve its its uh, its uh, any benefits, and if we're too late, it sends the system backwards. And if if the f- fire happens really out of out of timing, uh, you can put the system back five or ten years. Um, you can prevent the flowering of the eucalypts in that in that ecosystem uh, for three or four years until it regains its momentum. Well. We, we don't really know a lot of that stuff and, and, and we, we burn for all sorts of industrial reasons, um, hazard reduction, um, <clears throat> fuel control. There's all sorts of technical terms, but we don't, we don't have that empathy with the land that these people had and we need desperately to, to learn and understand that. I think, if we want to manage Australia properly.
0: That's it for part one of our conversation with Ian Morris. Don't forget to join us for part two. If you have any questions or comments, feel free to reach out. Write us an email, podcast at australiangeographic.com or find us on Instagram at australiangeographic. And if you go to australiangeographic.com.au slash talking Australia, you'll find a special subscription offer. So don't wait. Go to australiangeographic.com.au slash talking Australia. Also, make sure to subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, Spotify or wherever you get your podcast from. Thanks for listening and hear you next time.